It's uh, wonderful to be with you. Uh, it's really a privilege. Uh, we are so thankful to your church and for your hospitality, and we've just had a, a great time getting to know some of you a little bit better. And uh, I'm really especially honored to be able to share God's Word with you. And so if you'll take your uh, Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and specifically verses 7 through 13, but I'll read for you now Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, and I know you're accustomed to uh, standing as we read God's Word, so would you stand with me as I read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, where Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to make sure to uh, extend greetings to you from the, from the Clark family and to uh, thank you so much for allowing Randy and Susan to be with us and for your prayers for them. I know they appreciate that so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity to have them serving alongside of us. And I also want to give uh, our thanks and the thanks of our church to you uh, for sending over missions teams the past several years. We really love having missions teams come to, to serve with us, and we love missions teams for a whole lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons why we love having missions teams come over so much is because we feel like it gives you an opportunity to see what life's like serving Christ in a different place, in a foreign country. I know when I was young, I always thought of the missionary's life as being something so different. And the truth is, while there are a lot of things that are different about living in a foreign country, of course, the accents are different, the cultures are different, the food is different, uh, there also is a lot that is the same. And one of the things that is the same, whether you live in a foreign country or whether you live here where you, where you grew up, one of the things is, that is the same is our responsibility to evangelize and to disciple. Jesus made this responsibility very clear when he said, Go and make disciples. And today what I want to do is talk with you a little bit about discipleship. Even this evening we're talking about counseling, but counseling is basically intensive discipleship. And I thought that this morning we could look specifically at the motivations for discipleship. Or maybe better, I want us to think about what is it that drives the discipler? How does he or she think? 
And the reason I want to think about what is it that drives the disciples, because if you're going to get involved in other people's lives and seek to help them change, you definitely need to be, to be driven. Getting involved in someone else's life and trying to help them as they struggle through how to apply the scripture to their life isn't always going to come easily. It's often messy. It's often difficult. You're going to definitely face obstacles. The picture I have in my mind when I, I think of someone who's really driven to discipleship, I think of someone who is pressing on to accomplish a great goal in the face of tremendous odds. It's almost like you can picture hurricane-type winds, and you can imagine this man who is walking in the face of these hurricane-type winds, and even though the winds are pressing against him, he's taking one step forward, one at a time, moving forward. And you look at this man in the middle of that, and you ask, what is it that keeps him going? That's the kind of drive we need if we're going to make disciples. I, I think of Paul as an example of that. It's sometimes easy for us to forget the overwhelming sacrifices he made to influence others for Christ. There, of course, were the, the physical sacrifices that Paul made. Uh, they say Paul traveled something like 15,000 miles as a missionary, about 8,700 miles on foot. There were the relational sacrifices Paul made. As you read through his letters, you see that this was a man who was often forsaken by those closest to him because of his love for Christ. There were the cross-cultural sacrifices he made. Paul was raised Jewish. He was a Jew, and he, he says of himself, he was a Hebrew born of Hebrews, which meant that his family was really serious about this. And of course, his family would have really forbidden any close kind of association with, with Gentiles and looked at that as a, a matter of shame. And yet when Paul came to Christ, he was called to a ministry that primarily involved Gentiles. And so this was a great cross-cultural kind of movement for the Apostle Paul. There were the mental sacrifices, and these were the greatest of Paul's sacrifices, really. He, and when he compares the physical sacrifices in Corinthians to the, the mental anguish that he experienced, he describes the mental anguish as even being more intense than the physical sufferings. In fact, you know, Jesus says, do not be anxious. But often when Paul talks about his attitude towards the church, he indicates there must be a kind of anxiety that is biblical because he often says, I'm anxious for the church. This, the church was something he was so concerned about. There's a point where he talks about the pain he had on behalf of the church as being like a, a, a woman in labor. And you have to ask, what is it that drove a man to keep going forward one step at a time in the face of all those kinds of sacrifices, mental, physical, relational. And I think we find one answer here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is actually, if you look down at it, kind of an interesting section of Scripture because it's almost as if Paul is interrupting himself. It's one thing to interrupt someone else, but Paul here actually interrupts himself. He says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, and he's about to move on to explain something, but before he does that, he stops and he digresses and begins to talk about something else altogether, and he comes back to this reason in verse 14, where he says, For this reason I bow my knees. And what causes Paul to interrupt himself is his concern for the Ephesian church, actually. He knows that they know that he's suffering. And he 
anticipates that as they think about the Apostle Paul and they think about his suffering and they remember that he's the one who brought the gospel to them, they're going to be asking themselves, what is going on? If this is what happens to someone who brought the gospel to us, how are we to think about all the suffering that Paul is experiencing? And Paul, to answer that question, he doesn't give them just a little theological statement. Instead, what the Apostle Paul does is it's almost as if he takes them into his mind. He wants to show them the way that he thinks about what he's experiencing. And so what I want to do now with you is to look at Paul and observe the way that he thinks so that the way he thinks might become a pattern for us to follow as we go to disciple others. And first, I want you to see the way Paul thought about the gospel. We're asking the question, really, what is it that drove the Apostle Paul? And to understand what drove the Apostle Paul to disciple others, you have to understand the way that he thought about the gospel. And we see this in verse 7. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Gospel, of course, is a word we should know pretty well. It means good news. It's an announcement, it's a message about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his eventual return. It tells us about sin, our need of forgiveness, and the means of forgiveness being through faith in Christ alone. Minister here is a word I think most of us think we know, though I'm not sure that we always understand it the way Paul is using it here, because we sometimes hear minister and we think what? Pastor often paid pastor or someone who uh, preaches and actually the word Paul is using is deacon the term he uses literally means servant sometimes this was a word you would use to describe someone who waited on tables and Paul takes this word servant and he uses it to say this is my relationship to the gospel God has made me a servant of the gospel which is interesting I think Because when we talk about being someone's servant, we usually would speak of being a servant to another person. And of course, Paul thought of himself as a servant of Christ. But here, he talks about himself as a servant of what? A message. A message. And uh, I was just thinking, what are you saying if you say you're the servant of something? Obviously, Paul's saying he thought of this message, the gospel, as being more important than him. He, in a sense, exists for it, to do its bidding. And the thing is, that's not the way you normally would talk about most speeches, about most books, about most messages. If I I gave a lecture somewhere and I said, I am the servant of the lecture, you would think that was somewhat strange because usually if I give a speech or a lecture, that speech or lecture comes from me. I came up with it. But Paul can speak this way about the gospel because this is an unusual message in that it is not from Paul. Instead, it's from God. In the gospel, in this message, we find God speaking. In fact, if you look up at verse 3, Paul identifies the source of the gospel he proclaimed. And he's always at great pains to establish this when he writes. He says, you know how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. This isn't something that I discovered on my own. This is something that God had to reveal to me. And actually, right before that, in verse 2, he describes his ministry as a stewardship of God's grace. And 
He's saying that God gave him this message as a way he was going to pour out his undeserved kindness on people. And Paul, his job was to be like a manager of it. In other words, he has a responsibility to it. And what makes this responsibility for Paul even more serious is that God in this revelation has given him and us now a unique insight. He says in verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul says in verse 9, what's happening in the gospel is that God is bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. It's like in this message, the gospel, God is stepping in and personally taking away some of the mist and confusion about what he's doing in the world. He's making things more and more clear. And because of that, when Paul thought of the gospel, he saw himself not as someone standing over it, like he was in charge of it, but actually as someone who was under it. In other words, the message wasn't there for him. He was there for the message. Now that is an absolute essential when it comes to what drives a discipler. He sees the gospel as the place where God is speaking on matters of greatest seriousness. And as a result, he considers the gospel as a message that is ultimately even more important than his own life. And I wonder, do you see the gospel like that? Do you see this message as something that is more important than even your own life? There's this great scene in Acts 20 where actually Paul is talking to this Ephesian church, or more specifically to the Ephesian elders, and they're all sad actually because Paul, they know he's leaving them and he's going to Jerusalem and he doesn't know when he's going to see them again. And And Paul says, actually, that he doesn't really know what's going to happen in the future, except, he says, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Which is really an incredible thing to say if you think about it. Paul's saying, I don't know what's going to happen to me in the future except for bad stuff. The one thing the Holy Spirit's told me about my future ministry is imprisonments and afflictions in every city. And yet, how does Paul go on as he thinks about this kind of future? He says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. That's the kind of people we need to pray God makes us. People who treasure the gospel above life who see the gospel as a message of the greatest value. Because it really is. I mean, imagine, just to get a sense of how valuable the gospel is, imagine billions of people gathered together. And you have, in this room, the greatest people who have ever lived. Billions and billions of people. And since we're imagining, you might imagine a stage. And everyone's there looking up to the stage and God is speaking. And out of all the billions of people in this room, God points to you. And you have to look to make sure that he's pointing to you, but he points to you and he calls you to himself. And so you walk up past Nelson Mandela, past George Washington. Hey, George. 
past Abraham Lincoln, all the way to the stage, and God chooses you to draw to himself and whisper something in your ear to tell you his secrets. What a privilege to know the plan hidden for the ages in God. And what a responsibility as he looks at you and says, share. And the point is, that's a responsibility that is greater than you are, than I am, than Paul was. As men and women, we need to see ourselves as servants to the gospel, not the other way around. Second, there's the way Paul thought about the ministry. We're trying to understand, how did this man keep going? Well, first, there's the way he thought about the gospel. But second, there's the way that he thought about the ministry. And we see this again in in verse 7. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of God's power. Then in verse 8, he says, To me, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given. And then if you look back up at verse 2, actually, he's describing his ministry there as well. And he says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And there are two words in each of those descriptions of Paul's ministry that I want you to pay special attention to. And those words are gift and grace. Because that's how Paul thought of his ministry, as a gift of grace. And that's pretty remarkable when you think about all that Paul suffered. I mean, just... Reflect for a moment on the way he explains what he had gone through to help people know about Christ. He's in prison here. He says, Paul, a prisoner. And the reason he's in prison is actually solely because of Christ, nothing that he had done. It's only his relationship with Christ and his desire for the Gentiles to be saved that has caused him to be in prison. And this is not the only time he's in prison. Paul actually speaks of imprisonments. He was beat so often that he can describe it as countless. I can't imagine being beaten so often that you can't remember how many times you were beaten. But he was beaten so often for proclaiming the gospel, he said, I had countless beatings. He was often near death. He was stoned, which is really uh, something. I mean, you can just imagine people picking up rocks to throw them at you, not to chase you away, but actually to murder you. Three times he was shipwrecked. One time he says he was a night and a day adrift at the sea. Which, think about that. You're just clinging on to a piece of the ship out in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight, all because you wanted people to know Christ. I think for most of us, if one of those things happened, we would be ready to quit. Or at least have someone write a book about us, shipwrecked for Jesus, and then like go on tour. But with Paul, this was just one of the many difficulties he faced as he sought to take the gospel out. It was so difficult. In fact, Paul can describe his ministry lifestyle like this. He says, I was in danger from the rivers, danger from the robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. For those of us who really like security, that is a very scary sentence because it's basically danger everywhere. And here's where I'm going with that long list of troubles. And that is, if that was your life, if that was the ministry God called you to, danger, 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 shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, when you look back on it, how would you describe it? What words would you use to describe it? That kind of life. I'm not sure, the thing is, I'm not sure that many of us would choose the word gift. 
or the word grace. But Paul did. He viewed those sufferings and those difficulties as a small thing in light of the, view, the value of proclaiming Christ. It was such a small thing, being shipwrecked, beaten, stoned. It was such a small thing to him that he can say, God showed me undeserved kindness when he called me to this. And to me, this is really convicting because there are going to be things that you and I have to give up for making disciples of others. Not for most of us, the level of Paul's kinds of sacrifice, I'm guessing, but some things that are real. And after a while, you can find yourself complaining. When you think about getting involved in someone else's life, when you think about discipleship, serving Christ, and and you don't stop doing it, you keep doing it, but you do it with a kind of stoop shoulders. Poor me. How's ministry? Hard. It's hard. And we speak like that because we've lost sight of what an incredible privilege this is. To have the gospel. To be involved in sharing the message of eternal life with other people so that they might know the creator of the universe and have a relationship with him. Reading the story of Helen Rosevere, who's a missionary to, who was a missionary to Central Africa, actually, and she uh, uh, was in a place where many of the people in our church come from. But she endured some incredible tri- trials as a result of her service for Christ. For example, there was a time when rebel soldiers took over the compound in which she was living, and they held her hostage for five months and beat her and raped her. She was finally rescued. She was taken back to England only to come back to the training college later where she served and uh, helped that college grow. But as it was built up, they ended up receiving some funds from the government, which in Africa doesn't usually work well, and it caused all kinds of unrest among the students. So they asked for her resignation as an old woman from this work that she had given her life to. And as she went to leave, she looked back on her time in Africa and she describes how she felt. She says, I wasn't praying, I was beyond praying. Someone back home was praying earnestly for me. If I had prayed any prayer, it would have been, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet suddenly, as I was suffering like this, I imagined God as if he were stretching out his arms to me, surrounding me with his love and whispering to me, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? The privilege of being identified with our Savior. And as she thought about that, she said one word became unbelievably clear, and that was the word privilege. God didn't take away pain or the cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, she says. But now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was offering me the privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. And so in the weeks of imprisonment that followed, describing her, the time she was taken hostage, and in the years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost. But here's what she says, and listen to this. I find it all swallowed up in privilege the cost seems very small and temporary in the greatness and permanence of the privilege can you will you believe it and enter into it i mean that's awesome we need to think of service to christ like that not just the cost but the privilege we are privileged beyond belief 
discipleship ministry, getting involved and taking the gospel out is difficult. There's no doubt about it. But like Paul, we must remember, this is a gift. It's grace. It's undeserved kindness that we get to help people know and live for Christ. Paul thought about the ministry this way because of the way he thought about himself. And that's the third thing I want you to see, the way Paul thought about himself. Verse 8. His view of the ministry was connected to his view of God and to his view of himself. And sometimes we think differently about the ministry because we think about ourselves very differently than Paul does. I I love the way he talks about himself here in verse 8. He says, To me, though I am less than the least of all the saints. And it's easy to kind of pass that by, like Paul's just being polite or something like that. But of course not. If we were to gather all the saints together in a room and we were trying to put them in a line from greatest to least, we would be tempted to put Paul at the front of the line. But Paul would say to us, no, 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 actually, who's at the bottom? I'm far below that. Which is unusual because it's the opposite of the pattern you usually find in this world. When someone in this world becomes more and more powerful, usually what you find is where at the beginning when they didn't have much power, they might have looked at least like they think of themselves humbly. As they are given more and more power, they often become incredibly arrogant. With greater power, they think more and more of themselves. With Paul, what we see as he lives out his Christian life is the opposite. He's less and less excited about himself. Then here he says, I'm less than the least. He actually has to make up a word. It's the leastest. I'm the leastest of all the saints. Now, so there's no mistake. It's not that as Paul moved on in his Christian life, he became more worried about whether God loved him. No, he was continually growing in his understanding of God's love for him. And I say that because sometimes people think, When someone thinks low of themselves, that automatically means they're insecure, doubting God's concern for them. But it doesn't mean that, obviously. Instead, what happened in Paul's life is that as he drew closer and closer to God, and as he grew in his understanding of how much God loved him, at the same time, he grew in his understanding of how little he deserved it. And this is what you find ineffective disciples. This is what you find in people who get involved in other people's lives to share the gospel with them. They take the gospel very seriously. They take the ministry of evangelism and discipleship very seriously. They take a lot of things very seriously, but there's one thing they don't take seriously, and that's themselves. There's this constant sort of amazement at the love of God, at the cross, at the grace of God, and at their own unworthiness. And this is kind of the ironic thing about how spiritual maturity takes place, actually. The closer I get to the cross, the bigger Jesus becomes to me. And the smaller I become and and the more I see the seriousness of my sin. It always happens that way. So if I'm big in my own eyes, you can know Jesus is small in my eyes. If I think of my sin as something small... I will think of the cross as something small. That always goes together. And so if we're going to grow in our passion for taking the gospel out, we need to grow in our amazement that the gospel came to us. We need to be shocked that God would save someone like us. And I wonder, some of us, we've sat in church for so long and it's like we're bored by the gospel. We're not amazed anymore that that the creator of the universe would love us. This is something that should stun us the way it stunned the Apostle Paul. 
For the gospel to go wide from this church, the gospel needs to go deep into our hearts. And if the gospel is going to go deep into our hearts, God needs to bring us low before the cross. I was reading someone recently. He's been a pastor for 34 years. And yet as he tells his testimony, he says he still finds tears coming to his eyes. He's amazed that Jesus would save him. And that's like Paul, and that's what we want to be true of us, this sense of amazement, this awe. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. You want to be an old man in church or an old woman in church who, when, who after being a Christian for many, many years, when the pastor says, Jesus loves you, you say, yes, that's awesome. I can't believe it. I'm 85, I'm 90, and I just cannot believe that God would save me. That's what drove Paul, and that's what will drive us. Fourth, and we have to say this, because you can't understand the way Paul thought unless you see the way Paul thought not only about himself, but also the way Paul thought about Christ. The way Paul thought about Christ, and this may be the best part. He says in verse 8, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is one of those places where you see that Paul, his commitment wasn't to preaching a philosophy, it was to preaching a person. person. He wasn't going around just telling a set of ideas that he came up with. He was going around telling others about a person who existed and exists He proclaimed Christ. And what I like so much about the way Paul puts it here is you get a glimpse of the way he feels about this person. This is not just a hard duty. He says, I am preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. And there's a lot of things you could say about that statement. But one of the things that you have to say about it is that it reveals a delight that Paul took in the person of Christ. When he thinks about Christ, there's just this awe that Paul has for him. It's easy to see if you... uh, made Paul decide between the whole world and everything it has to offer and Christ, Paul would not have a difficult time choosing between the two. He would choose Christ. He, there wouldn't even be a comparison in his mind. Are you kidding me? The unsearchable riches of Christ. And I was wondering, is that true of me? Is that true of you? Do you see Christ that way as a person of endless worth? Because this is the heart of disciple-making, really. A love for Jesus, for this person. I was reading another story about this Helen Rosevere who suffered so much. She said, people would ask me all the time, was it worth it, all the suffering, what you accomplished there? And I'd tell them, no, it's been too costly. All I got done doesn't offset what I paid for it personally. But then she realized they were asking the wrong question. It wasn't, Was it worth it? The question instead was, was Jesus worthy? And of course, Jesus is worthy. That's Paul's attitude, love for Jesus. And it needs to be ours as well. If we want to lead people to Jesus, we need to see him the way Paul does. In him are the endless riches and treasures. And I'm afraid we don't always think of Christ as incredibly rich. Like this. I, I, I think the greatest weakness in many people's Christianity, honestly, is that it's missing Christ. 
they're so busy doing so many things, activities, programs, going here, there. There's little time for them to be amazed by the person of Christ. They're excited when someone talks about themselves. They're bored by Jesus. They're fascinated by trivial things and have a difficult time concentrating on the most significant person in the universe. And so if we're going to be people who take the gospel out and who are driven to disciple, we need to be people who spend time in faith focusing on what the scripture says about Jesus. He is rich in every way. We need to learn to delight in the person of Jesus Christ. We might take his power and authority and focus on the fact that our Savior is rich in power and authority. When he ascended into heaven, the Bible tells us that God the Father seated him at his right hand. We must not think of Jesus as up in heaven, wringing his hands with his head hung low in worry. No, all authority has been given to him. He's rich in power. There's no lack to what he can do. Christ is rich in glory and majesty. I love to consider the moment when Jesus entered heaven as the God-man. After he ascended, saw his disciples down there, was raised up, the Bible tells us, and he was brought into the throne room of God the Father. Imagine all those glorious angels seeing the God-man enter the throne room as they're crying out, Holy, 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 and God the Father seats him at his right hand. This is awesome. Everyone else in the world, you go to them, you spend time with them, they become smaller to you. The closer you get to them, the smaller they become. Jesus, he's the only person in the universe, the closer you get to this man, the God-man, the bigger he becomes. No matter which way you look at him, you'll find more than enough of every good. And, And what's more, it's not just that we look at Christ as someone who's rich, and far off from us, like, isn't it nice that he's rich? Isn't that interesting? But isn't that interesting? But he has no concern for us. No, the Bible tells us Christ, who was rich, became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Christ came to earth to share his riches with us. This Savior has everything we need most. Like wisdom, you need the ability to understand where the world is headed. You find it in Christ. You need righteousness, approval, status, goodness, a lifetime of obedience to God's law. You need the ability to stand before the judge of the universe and have him look at you and declare you blameless and above reproach. You find that in Christ. You need a relationship with God. You're on your own. You need someone who cares about you. You need to belong. You find that in Christ. You need freedom, freedom to say no to sin and to move on from there, and to do what's right. You need to be released. You can only find that in Jesus. You need access to God. You need to be able to speak to the creator of the universe and know that he hears you, and not only that he hears you, but that he delights in you. And Paul says, Ephesians 3, 12, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Out of this whole world, there is no one who is more valuable than Christ. And I don't think that there's anything that will drive you to get involved in other people's lives more than getting to know him better. Discipleship is is difficult, and there's much more we can say from this passage, of course, but discipleship is difficult. It can be challenging, not just for overseas missionaries, but here. 
this is still hard, and it's not going to happen accidentally. We're not going to make disciples accidentally, usually. We need to be driven. We need to have a passion for taking the gospel out. And, and that's why I want you to step back and consider and think about the way you look at your life. Do you think about your life the way the Apostle Paul did? Do you think about the gospel the way he did, as a message that is more important than breathing? What would change about you if you thought about the gospel as more important than your life? Do you think about being able to serve God like Paul did, as grace, as a gift? Do you think about yourself the same way, as someone who completely doesn't deserve salvation, but instead as someone who deserves hell? Do you think of yourself as someone who deserves to have God pour out his wrath upon you for all eternity? but instead now is a person who's swimming in an ocean of grace. How about Christ? Do you love him? Is your, does your heart beat faster when you hear about him? Are you a person who's more fascinated when you look in the mirror or a person who's more fascinated when you look into his word? Are you passionate about what God is passionate about. I remember hearing the story of how during worship in a little country church, after the offering, the ushers apparently were returning to the front with the offering baskets. And a small boy tugged at the sleeves of, of one of the men, whispering, and he, he said, please put the plate down on the floor. Which is pretty strange, even in a country church, I'm sure. But the usher obeyed and put the offering plate down on the floor, after which the boy stepped into it. He stepped into the offering plate, and it was his way of saying, I give my whole life to you, Lord. Not just the coins in my pocket, but my time, my strength, and all the days of my life. That little boy was thinking the way the Apostle Paul thought. And I wonder if we are thinking like that ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for opening our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, of this person, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for showing us grace and helping us to, to understand how significant he is and significant what, he, what he's done for us is. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be people who are bored by the amazing and amazed by the boring, but Lord, help us to be people like the Apostle Paul who glory in our salvation and are driven to take this message out no matter what the cost because we see that it's a tremendous privilege. Pray this in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.